Welcome back to Conversations at the Perimeter. I'm Colin and I'm here with Lauren and we are thrilled to share our conversation with Francois David. Francois is a mathematical physicist, which means he tackles really hard problems of physics like quantum gravity using a mathematical toolkit. And I have to admit, uh, that's a toolkit that I didn't have a lot of experience with growing up. So I was a little apprehensive going into this conversation, but thankfully Francois is a very gifted teacher. Francois was actually one of my teachers when I first came to Perimeter as a grad student in the Perimeter Scholars International Master's program. And he's been coming to teach in this program from France for many, many years. And he has an amazing reputation among the students. I'm now actually an instructor in that program myself, and so I've been able to interact with Francois both as one of my teachers and now as a colleague. So what's it like for, uh, for you to put Francois in the hot seat now where you ask all the hard questions and he has to answer them? Honestly, it was a really different experience because back when I was a student, I was usually too nervous to put my hand up in class and ask questions. He even mentions during this conversation that he remembers I always had a lot of questions, but <laughs> I know that I would usually stay after class to ask those around just a smaller group of students. And so this was really different that I got to ask questions and share the conversation with so many others. And for me, that apprehension I had off the bat, it melted away so quickly when I, I realized just how much he loves physics and, and how infectious his love is for it. I'm excited for, uh, for other people to get that sense of the joy of physics and math from Francois. So let's uh, step inside the perimeter. Thank you so much, Francois, for joining us for a conversation today. And it's great to have you here at PI all the way from France. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what you do as a mathematical physicist and what it means to work in that field? Well, first, thank you very much for this invitation to this kind of interview. That's my first uh, experience in this, almost my first. Okay, about my experience as a mathematical physicist, well, I, I must say that I don't really know exactly what is mathematical physics because it depends a bit on the country, on the culture, or the person. So I am partly a theoretical physicist and partly a mathematical physicist, or rather both. And mathematical physics is a field of research. There is no real border, but the interface between mathematics and theoretical physics. Mathematical physicists are more involved in uh, using uh, recent and sophisticated mathematical techniques and ideas, because mathematics are way much than just techniques of calculation. They are concept ideas. So mathematical physicists are more interested in the structure of physical theory and understanding uh, how they works, what one can tell out of the mathematics that governs the, the physical theory, and understand often on simple models, not always, but on, they take a simple model, not often directly related to some uh, real physical systems. It, it may be, but it's, they're often idealized in order to keep track just of the important physical feature they want to understand and uh, working out as deeply as possible the math and the theory and see what comes out. Are those models, those theoretical models consistent? For instance, that's a very important. Can we uh, compute exactly and prove properties of this model or do we just, are we just able to use what are called phenomenological models? So we, one makes assumptions, uh, some uh, approximation, and then one uh, relies on uh, calculation and uh, also physical intuition to 
And often it works, but sometimes it doesn't work. You really have to work hard and do hard math, and some deep and uh, so, sometimes unexpected results come out. So that, that's mathematical physics. Francois, you used the word consistent there to describe the research. Does consistent mean that an idea is true or that it's true enough for now? And is inconsistency an enemy of science? In my mind, consistency is a mathematical consistency. It's related to another concept, very important for some physicists, not all of them, which is the mathematical beauty of the theory. So it's something which was very important for, for Dirac, Paul Dirac, one of the uh, creators and uh, inventors of quantum mechanics, who considers that a, a theory has to, had to be true if it was beautiful. This led him to, for instance, to, to discover the Dirac equation. And the, so often, beauty is associated to mathematical consistency in the, in, in the mind of mathematicians and in the mind of many theoretical physicists. There is something uh, which is more than just mere beauty, because of some very simple object can be very beautiful. Consistency means that often in, in uh, theoretical physics, one, st one needs to start with some assumption. There is space, there is time. There is, for instance, one important assumption is, in, is there is no difference between the future and the past, which seems a bit, uh, of course, contradictory with our daily experience, but that's a, a deep principle of nowadays theoretical physics. So one makes assumption. One says what the physical problem or a physical system is described by, uh, one makes some assumption. One assumes the rules, for instance, the rules of classical mechanics or the rules of the law, rather than the rules, the law of quantum mechanics, the law of hydrodynamics, the law of uh, classical physics, Newton laws, etc. And one sees whether building out of that, one doesn't run up into some mathematical inconsistency. Sometimes it's uh, easy to see that there should be some inconsistency in some uh, direction, so don't look in this direction, look in the problems where the inconsistency doesn't uh, appear. And sometimes the inconsistency appears in a surprising way. And of course, if you run into a mathematical inconsistency in your calculation, it means that you have to think more. Either one of our assumptions was wrong, or it might be a, a paradox, but not a real inconsistency if you work out enough. Science and knowledge progress by making errors. If everything was uh, clearly understandable and consistent from the very beginning, uh, it wouldn't be interesting. And could I also say maybe that if in physics we often tend to start with assumptions, and as you said, sometimes those assumptions might lead to inconsistencies and sometimes not, would a goal of mathematical physics be to provide more structure to those assumptions so that they're maybe at some point no longer assumptions? Yeah, this happens too. Sometimes you, you start from uh, assumptions, you work, or after some, some other researchers come out from different fields or other different ideas, or even some mathematicians come out from theory, and uh, one discovered that those, uh, those assumptions were, were correct. It was not coming from some uh, naturalness or intuition that things should be that way. It mm -hmm. comes out that they had to be this way, and that's mm -hmm. the difference between often one starts by, oh, things should work this way or that way, and then you may have different uh, theories which start from different point of view. After working often very hard by a team of very different people, one comes out of that that, in fact, 
oh, things had to be that way, this way, and not that way. Or sometimes, oh, things had to be this way, and your two approaches were, you know, seemingly con contradictory, but consistent. Mm -hmm. And this happens in the early days of quantum mechanics, very often, where people were starting from some kind of wild assumptions. I often hear mathematicians talk about the sense of beauty in mathematics, and that's a beauty that personally I haven't been able to experience because I grew up a little bit afraid of math. Uh, can you describe the, the sense of beauty that you see in mathematics? I'm not a mathematician, so I won't speak as a mathematician, although I know some mathematics. I was educated in mathematics since the French high school and uh, university system is uh, more focused on mathematics than other countries. Also, I uh, married a mathematician and uh, two of my daughters are mathematicians. My impression is that mathematicians see beauty in simplicity of structure, but consistency. So structure objects can be, mathematical theories can be complicated, but there is some underlying structure which enables you to come out to uh, theorems by abstract reasoning, not just heavy and technical calculation. Although they are also very important, also both in theoretical physics, science in general, or in uh, mathematics, you, you see simplicity after a lot of hard work. It's a bit like, uh, you know, digging an archaeological field. You find some beautiful objects, but you had to work well. And... Once you, you find something, you say, oh, but I should have looked in this direction, come to the results very easily. But of course, you know, you just know because you are hard. So that's my feeling of what mathematicians feel about beauty. So one of my daughters is a mathematician. She's doing algebraic geometry and number theories. And she said, I prefer math to physics because in math, we are dealing with objects we have created ourselves. And so we know it's consistent. While in physics there is some uh, external world, and we start from that. We want to understand the universe. We want to understand uh, how uh, a cell works, uh, how the solar system works, uh, why uh, you know, there are chemical reactions. And that's something which is uh, given to us, or which is there for us to understand. And, uh, that's probably one reason why... Uh, I prefer to be a physicist than a pure mathematician. So uh, my, probably my, my brain prefers to be a mathematician. That's why I'm a mathematical physicist. But my, uh, you know, my curiosity or my intuition uh, prefers to have uh, surprises coming from where we live. Especially here, you have a, a group of very good people uh, talking about the foundations of physics and the foundation and some philosopher too. They will be able to tell more. But it's unclear whether the mathematics are part of the real world or something completely you know, outside. That's a view of many mathematicians that uh, mathematics exists by themselves. Physicists more consider mathematics as a, as a tool. Uh, there is a debate that goes back to the Greek philosophers about what are mathematics and the physics. And they are intertwined since they were created or discovered. From what you say, I mean, you're giving us a nice description that mathematics involves some beautiful structures that we can create, and physics is about describing these really interesting phenomena in our world. So maybe mathematical physics is working from both of those ends to give some structure to the universe. But I guess I also, and oh, maybe that's not correct, but... No, 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 no. I think that's a good uh, view, but I'm not an historian of science, but many of the mathematical objects you know, were created from 
the real worlds and mm -hmm. then uh, evolved on their own. And some structure of the real worlds have been, you know, discovered through mathematics. Mm -hmm. And is that why we need mathematical physics so that we make sure that those two ends are talking to each other? Yeah, we need one needs the interface has been there. It has been uh, important and not important depending on the historical period in science and also on the countries. But the interface has to be, otherwise there won't be good physics without mathematics, of course, because uh, I think Galileo stated, one of the first to state that mathematics is a language physics. Also, a lot of mathematicians now, uh, not all of them, but of course, it depends, get inspiration from physics and the ideas which somehow a bit clumsy ideas created by uh, theoretical physicists, you know, come in mathematics change things and then come back to physics as a neat tool and with new ideas uh, provided mathematicians. There are many examples and one can think about a few in the last decades. So mathematics, you said, is a tool that we can use to make progress in big problems in physics. So what are some of the big problems in physics that you are trying to tackle using mathematical techniques? I've been a uh, very much interested. In fact, I realized all along my uh, career, on, uh, not only in this question, but about random geometries. Let's say uh, starting from a geometrical object and see what's the role of randomness. And one of my uh, interests in that comes from quantum gravity. So quantum physics and uh, gravitation. Theory of gravitation has been born with Kepler, Newton, all the great mind of the, in the 19th century. Then Einstein discovers that in order to make gravitation compatible with the theory of relativity that he was discovered in order to understand the behavior between light and matter, no gravitation, he discovers that in fact space-time told us that you shouldn't consider space and time as two separate notions or entities, but they have to be taken as a part of space-time. Einstein discovered that in order to formulate a consistent theory of gravity, the space-time itself has an internal structure, it has a metric, and it's, it can be a geometrical object. In fact, it, it is a curved object. All of space-time, so both space is curved, usually one often you often find this fact that you have, a, you say that you have a flat space, you put a body in it, like the sun, and it curves the space. And then, therefore, it's like a ball, and you can have a marbles, a way to, to explain empirically why the planets orbits around the sun. The theory of general relativity uh, of Einstein says that also time is curved, and that's something which is more uh, difficult to, but it's space and time which are curved not only space. Relativity tells us that, in fact, time is associated to space. So time has to be considered as a separate time at different points in space. When you start to uh, compare what's happening when you go to different places, you let run time and you, then you come back at the same place, you discover that space behaved in a different way that you could have expected if time was something uniform, like in Newton's theory of time. Especially when there is a gravitational field. If you have a black hole and you are far from the black hole, or if you go close to the black hole and come back, or close to the sun and then come back, then uh, time has uh, behaved differently. Approach a black hole, you come back, then the clocks are desynchronized. So there was a very nice example of that in, the, in a movie recently, this in Interstellar. This is checked in, uh, in laboratories, not going 
near black holes, but just uh, having two atomic clocks that you you raise one of the atomic clocks by a few meters, drop it back to the on the table where it started from, and you can see such effects. They're mm-hmm. tiny effects, but they are measurable and agree with the theory. Now come quantum mechanics. Great discovery of last century. Einstein also played a role, but less uh, central compared to relativity. And in uh, in quantum mechanics, randomness, some very special kind of randomness, rather than randomness, one should say, some, the role of chance is very important. Uh, there is some indeterminacy. You are n- never sure of what the results of a measurement will be. But this randomness, in some sense, is uh, uncertainty is governed by mathematical rules which are very, very precise. So it's not randomness just uh, because we don't know exactly what's going on. When you are interested in, uh, for instance, the theory of quantization of gravity, one of the great uh, problems of the nowadays of present physics, you have to treat space-time as uh, a curved object, a curved space-time, but with some randomness or coming from the quantum nature of the universe. And uh, we know that uh, for consistency, this idea of consistency, of beauty of the theory, the geometry of space-time, the curvature of space-time, has to be treated as a random object, but an object with randomness agreeing with the law of quantum mechanics, if indeed gravitation is consistent with quantum mechanics. And we don't really know if they are consistent. We hope that it's consistent. We are trying to make a consistent theory of quantum gravity. But maybe we'll come up into an inconsistency, which means that we will have to build a new theory of nature, which will be post-quantum and post-gravitational. So quantum gravity, it's essentially the quest to reconcile two theories, right? Quantum mechanics and general relativity, and to sort of come up with a bridge between the two? We need to have a, a consistent theory, a physical theory, which leads us to a complete understanding of quantum mechanics and of a quantum complete understanding of gravity. We have to build such a theory. Some physicists think that it's not necessary, that we can still live with those two theories, but the vast majority thinks that for just this reason of consistency and beauty in the sense of logical consistency, there has to be such a theory. It depends with whom you talk. There are several, uh, you know, direction of research, and it's a very active subject, where in, in part, well represented at, uh, in here in the perimeter. Because, and uh, there are many different ideas. Some are mathematically well developed, some are less and more rely on intuition, mm-hmm. or some, some uh, toy model. The two main ones are string theory, and the other one is based on still treating the geometry of space-time, how four-dimensional space-time has some basic data, and quantizing it uh, according to the law of quantum mechanics, while string theory is wider and more speculative. A lot of your contributions are specifically to two-dimensional quantum gravity, and we had a really good question sent in from Tibra in Ah, Bangladesh, so maybe we can listen to his question. Hi, Francois, this is Tibro. I'm a theoretical physicist based in Bangladesh. Uh, of course, uh, you and I know each other, so this is for other people, other listeners. Anyway, I have a question for you. Recently, there have been some buzz in the uh, physics circle about uh, your work in two-dimensional gravity and how that has helped breakthroughs um, in recent years. So I was just wondering if you could explain in general terms uh, what 
your contribution was to the field of two-dimensional gravity and how that contributed to recent breakthroughs in two-dimensional gravity. Thank you for listening and thank you for your answer. Thank you, Tibora. I've been specifically interested and worked and got some interesting results in a subfield of quantum gravity called two-dimensional gravity. It's both a time model and a very interesting model for some physical application. It's a model which is very much simplified, a core model where you can study one aspect of the, of the physics. But, but the idea uh, would be that by working with this toy, we can still gain some insights that will still help yes, us to understand yes, the more yes, complicated yes, system. Yes. And so an example of a tunnel model, which is a very useful example for studying quantum gravity, is to consider that space-time, instead of having three dimensions, one time, or as in string theory, nine or ten dimensions of space and one dimension of time, or maybe nine dimensions of space and two directions of times, we can consider a, a very simplified model of space-time where you have one direction of space, so space is just a line, and one direction of time. So space-time is just a, a sheet of paper. So it's a very simple model, and uh, you lose many aspects of uh, gravitation theory. In particular, you lose a very important aspect of gravitation. You, you lose the law of uh, attraction, Newton's law, mm -hmm. for some technical reasons. So you, you have no gravitation anymore. But you have geometry, because you know, a sheet of paper can be curved. If it's a rubber sheet, it has curvature. So you, you keep one of the basic points is that space-time is curved. So you can quantize it, and you can study the quantum effects. In particular, that's uh, the simple case where you can build a consistent quantum model of gravity. And you, you can build a theory from some principle or axioms and compute things and go to the end of your calculation and get insights about what uh, quantum gravity could be or some aspects of quantum gravity could be or could not be. So working with a two-dimensional model, or rather one plus one-dimensional model, space-time rather than to four-dimensional, three plus one-dimensional space-time, is very important and is very interesting. And I've been working, I think, since the 80s by some period on, on those models. My contribution in this idea have been twofold. I've been one of the first to implement the idea that instead of taking a continuum space-time, you can approximate it by a discrete object. Uh, typically, you can see that you can build a surface out of uh, taking triangles, flat triangles, but gluing them. And if you glue them in a proper way, you can build polyedra. So you can build curved surfaces, so curved space-time, out of a discrete object and realize the quantumness of a quantum space-time by looking at the combinatorics of this construction you can make by building uh, what's called triangulation. If you glue triangle, you, you build a triangulation of a surface, so you, or you build a discretized surface or a discrete surface, and treating this object as quantum means look at the statistics at the surface. That's a typical average size average shape, average curvature of such an object. And it seems to naive and simple ideas, but uh, it was motivated by the fact that these procedures is known to work already in, uh, in quantum physics without gravitation. When this idea was introduced, it was in the 80s, theoretical physicists I had introduced what they called lattice gate theory. 
discretized theory of the strong interaction, for instance, but on a discrete space-time. By uh, you know, extension and analogy, uh, we, well, I and some other theoreticians and some mathematicians, too, started to look at can you make this idea working for a very simple one-plus-one theory of quantum space-time. And it turns out that you can work and make calculations in these toy models using mathematical theory, which came out from something completely different, which is called the theory of random matrices, which comes from the study of quantum systems, which are very complicated dynamics. So not toy models, but very, very complicated models, and looking for whether they still exhibit some universal features, which are there because the system are very, very complicated instead of being very, very simple. The, the idea of a toy model, is it, is it sort of akin to building a, a toy car with just a wooden rectangle and four round wheels, making sure it rolls, and then eventually, gradually adding more and more features until you've got a sports car? If we didn't have the toy model to think about it, it would have been very difficult to find in the very complicated system. So that's one aspect of the toy model. But uh, then I could say that there are other, another kind of toy models, uh, which is exemplified by this idea of random matrices. So won't expect, but think about the matrices are just a table of numbers, like an Excel spreadsheet. An Excel spreadsheet, where you can add them, you, can, you know that you can add the, you know, the cells of an spreadsheet, but you can also multiply them. More complicated, but uh, mathematicians and physicists know very well what it means. And so order comes out of complexity. Or to mention uh, a word of a famous physicist, uh, E.W. Anderson, the sum is more than the parts. It appears, for deep mathematical reasons, that if you take a very complicated object made out of simple objects, instead of becoming just a mess, it becomes something which exhibits very simple features. Some universal behavior comes out of complexity, and the property of the sum of this object is not just emerging from the properties of the small parts. It's come out from the, the wool. This is also an idea which uh, is important, for instance, in quantum gravity. Many suspect that, in fact, the fact that we have a smooth, neat space-time with a bit of curvature explain gravity, it may come out from something, you know, at Planck scales or and below at some post-quantum scales, which is completely different and maybe random. Both the idea of taking toy models to understand the real systems and taking complicated systems to understand what's going on for large systems, there are two trends and common, not in, completely not incompatible, ideas which are very important in modern theoretical physics. Because then you can make toy models of complex very complex system and study them. That's the idea of those random matrix models. They are simple, complex models. And I want to go back to a word you said a little while ago, which is this word universal. You said sometimes in yes. these systems you can end up finding something that's actually universal. So can you tell us what that means? Universality means that out of uh, very different systems they exhibit the same behavior. So in some sense, this behavior is universal. This concept, which is now one of the very important concepts in theoretical physics, comes out not from high-energy physics, not from gravity. It comes out from uh, condensed matter. It led to the discovery or the creation of a theory, which is called the theory of renormalization, renormalization group. But uh, forget about the group. You have some different physical systems, completely different, which in fact 
exhibit in some regime exactly the same behavior. If you study the behavior of ice and water, water can be a liquid, can be a solid, and it can be a gas. Usually it's uh, one or the other. But there is a very special point when you have water at a very specific temperature and a very specific pressure, you reach what is called a critical point where water is neither a liquid or a gas, it's both. At these points, there are huge fluctuations of pressure and density. These behaviors occurs for water, but it occurs also for other gases. It's, in fact, it's better studied in other gases or other liquids. It's a, usually you have, a, you have phase function. You heat water and at some point it boils. It's very sudden. Suddenly vapor starts to happen. So it's called the first order transition. But if you increase the pressure, there is a point where the transition becomes smaller and smaller. At some points it disappears. It turns out that you have a system of magnets. I don't know if in high school you might have done the experiment that you take a magnet. So the magnet has, uh, has some magnetic property. And if you eat the magnet, you put it under a Bunsen uh, flame. At some point, the magnet stops being a magnet. It's just a dull piece of metal. So there is a critical temperature where a magnet stops being a magnet. And it turns out that the property of this magnet are the same or very similar to the property of water. That's very strange. This has not been understood uh, for many years, and uh, in the beginning of the 70s and the 16th end of the 70s, physicists working in condensed matter understood why this occurs, but they understood thanks to one of the great high-energy physicists of that time, Ken Wilson, who started being interested in those what's called critical phenomena. He built out, out of ideas which came from high-energy physics, the concept of renormalization transformation and what's called now renormalization group. So the idea is that if you start from a system, for instance, which is described at a microscopic scales by a collection of atoms, atoms can behave as small magnets, very little magnets, in fact. That's the origin of magnetism. You have atoms, you have electrons turning around, and the electrons have a magnetic moment. In, in addition, they create magnetic moments because they go around the nuclei of the atom, etc. So, okay, anyway, so that's the origin of magnetism. But if you start from the magnet described just by its microscopic structure at the atomic scale, and you start to uh, look at what are the properties of this magnet if you go at larger and larger scales, so changing the scales, so making some averaging the magnetic property of a magnet instead of looking at the property of a magnet, you see at the property uh, at, a, at a, the scale of an atom, you see a cube, right? 10 by 10 by 10 atoms, and you see what are the properties of this magnet. Like zooming out, right? On yeah, a it's picture. exactly, no, it's exactly like zooming out, but zooming out being defined in a proper mathematical way. <laughs> right. And if you do that, it was discovered by Ken Wilson and explained, and the other physicists working in that field, that this procedure sometimes converges in some sense. You zoom out, you zoom out, you zoom out, and uh, at, when you have zoomed, you find something which is the same kind of object wherever you were looking at a magnet or at a fluid where you could say, okay, this, uh, this a tiny region of space can be either a liquid or a gas. So if you want, you take the molecule of your water and either there are very closely packed and they are connected by hydrogen bonds, or 
Well, they, they can wander around, so they form a liquid. So it's exactly the same thing. You take very different systems, sometimes complicated objects, so the, the dynamics can be complicated, it can be simple in a time model, it can be complicated in a model. You zoom out, you zoom out, you zoom out, and if you go zoom out enough, sometimes you find the same object. So in this sense, you know, simplicity or beauty is emerging by zooming out what's going on in the complicated uh, system. So this is the idea of universality, which is very important in physics. When you normalize, you know, you average and see what are the property, and mm -hmm. you, this creates some kind of norm. And uh, renormalization means that you norm at a scale, then you change the scale, you renormalize, then you change again the scale, you renormalize, etc., etc. So you have this idea of toy models and this idea of renormalization, so that a simple phenomenon come out of very complicated object and are irrespective of the detail of what's going on at uh, small scales. And it seems, Francois, like some of these tools like renormalization group or random matrix yes. theory, they've allowed you to study quite different problems, right? You've talked just now about some problems in condensed matter. You were telling us about quantum gravity. Yes. Would you mind maybe telling us the story of your career and maybe the different problems that you've looked at along the way? Yes. In fact, that's, uh, I realized that this concept of universality and normalization group has been one of the guiding lines of my research. Uh, that's, those tools were created when I was uh, in high school, so I learned them when I started. I was a graduate student, and I've been trying to improve them and apply them. And in fact, so I, I started in high-energy physics uh, theory, and then I started being interested in whether I could apply those ideas to uh, condensed matter. And then. When I was a postdoc at the, in Princeton, I came in uh, contact with researchers working in quantum gravity, this idea of discretizing space-time, and so I uh, applied it to quantum gravity. So I started to study this idea to work in quantum gravity in those two-dimensional model, a bit of higher dimension, but this doesn't work so well. And then I came in contact with uh, another field of theoretical physics, which is power physics, in fact. And one very specific uh, subject, which is uh, the study of uh, membranes. You have two-dimensional films in three dimensions. Because I, I went I was in touch with young physicists visiting Saclay, and then one got, got a position, and they were working on that field. And this idea of universality is very important because by discussing, we discovered that, in fact, some models of quantum gravity in two dimensions and some models of membranes were very similar. They had some difference, in particular, the role of uh, bending. In two-dimensional gravity, bending is not important, while it's very important in... Uh, physical membrane. So I, I've been working in this concept, you know, studying the physics of what's called fluid membranes and then crystalline membranes. That was, this, this was a very exciting field and it's still important. But then a few years later, there was some great progress in the theory of quantum gravity and in string theory made by a group of theoreticians, especially a Russian one, this Russian school with uh, Migdal, Polyakov, and we made progress in the two-dimensional quantum gravity, so I came back to that field. And I was there more interested in not discretizing space-time, but taking a continuum theory of two-dimensional gravity, a theory which was well, created and invented by Polyakov, which is called Liouville theory. Liouville is a famous French mathematician from the 20th century. He was a number theorist, mostly a number theorist. But 
some of these equations were important in quantum gravity. So a model was neutral gravity, which is connected to string theory, was developed by this Russian school and that happens to be known as the Liouville theory. But there are other theories of two-dimensional quantum gravity, like the Akiv Teitelbaum model and some other one, but one is a Liouville theory. And so I, I've been working on that. After that, I came back to one metric theory or several years in was interested in that in particular for uh, quantum chaos because quantum matrix theory mm. has, has a application to quantum chaos. And then I came back to quantum gravity. The first time we spoke, you used the term journey to describe your career. And you said that theoretical physics requires all sorts of different minds. So what kind of mind do you bring to the journey of theoretical physics? I would say there are different kinds of minds in theoretical physics. I'm not completely sure which mind I am. Some likes to wander around. I'm still a bit stubborn, so I come back to all problems. When I'm stuck, sometimes I look elsewhere, but I always come back. I have some problems in my mind that I have them since 20 years. I'm just mm-hmm. waiting for the good idea, if any, <laughs> or if someone had a good idea to solve it, but they are still there. Some of these problems that you've described to us are incredibly challenging. Some of them are so difficult that they may not see a solution in our lifetimes, possibly ever. Francois, given the hugeness of these challenges, what keeps you going? I think that's curiosity. Uh, as, as long as I've not understood something, uh, I like to think about it. I feel uh, disappointed. You know, I feel a failure not having you know, made progress in a field. Uh, if, if someone else um, made the progress, that's fine. I, mean, I said, okay, I was not smart enough. I didn't have the right idea. I, they, you know, there is change in, in research. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you just have the good idea at a good time, and sometimes you don't have it, or sometimes you, you had it too early. And you couldn't make and out something of it. So, Francois, we also got a question for you that was sent in from one of the students that you're currently teaching within your quantum field theory course within the Perimeter Scholars International Program. Let's play the question from Anna Kinnur. You teach a course on quantum field theory, and one of the topics is ghosts. Without writing down any integrals, how would you explain what these ghosts are? Well, the denomination ghost has been given by the physicist who created this concept. I think those are the Russian, Fadeyev and Popov, but I'm not completely sure anyway. You know, a physicist likes to find nice names when they have new objects. Sometimes the, the names are well-suited, sometimes they are silly, but they stay. Okay, so ghosts, in fact, are particles in a quantum theory whose probability to be there is negative. If you think about probability, you know, probability, uh, it's a very important tool of mathematics. Mm -hmm. And the the probability of an event, if you have some uncertainty on something happening, for instance, if you play coins and it has a probability one half to be heads and one half to be tails. Okay. If the probability of some events is one, it means that it's uh, certain, you are sure. If it's zero, it means that it never happens. So the probability are numbers which are in between zero and one, or zero percent and 100 percent. You cannot have a probability of two, because if you have a, you know, the sum of the probability of all realization of an event has to be one, because that's uh, something happens, whatever it is, it's sure it's going to happen. If you have uh, head and tails, one half plus one half is one. In quantum theory, where there is change and uncertainty, you can calculate probabilities of something to be measured, and the sum of the probabilities of all possible outcomes of experiments or of measurements has to be one. And in consistent quantum theory, the sum of probabilities 
is one. It's called unitarity. But it turns out that in some quantum theory, you get probability two and probability minus one. But it's not a physical theory because uh, you have a probability to, for instance, to get a particle created, which is minus one. When you have a theory with such particles, they are called ghosts. Sometimes when you make a theory and you get probability which are negative or greater than one, that's an example of an inconsistency. I was going to say it sounds like something that must bother mathematicians. It bothers mathematicians, it bothers physicists too, <laughs> of course, because there are many theories of quantum gravity which have ghosts. The first series of strong interaction are the ghosts. Most of the ghosts, uh, particles, when you see them, they are uh, not... It means that the theory, you can uh, put it aside and start with a better theory. In the lecture that I gave, uh, it's a theory where you try to quantize the theory of strong interactions. In this series, uh, well, you run into technical difficulties, and one way to uh, deal with this difficulty and to solve the problem is to introduce fiducial particles in the theory, which precisely have this property of having negative probabilities to be observed, or larger than one probability to be observed. The fact that you have to consider those parts of those kind of ghostly particles when you make calculation comes out from the math. So they have to be there, but when you work out more on the theory, you see that you can never observe them. They are virtual particles that are there in the quantum vacuum of the theory, or in when you make calculation, uh, you have two particles, you throw them one together in an accelerator, you have a, a quantum theory that describes what's going on when they interact, and you have a lot of virtual quantum process. And then there is an outcome, some other particles, two, three, four, many, because you can create particles come out. When you do the calculation, you see that you never see any of those ghostly particles. So those ghostly particles are there in your calculation. So in some sense, if you are a mathematician, you see if it's in the calculation, it's something that exists, but you can never observe it. So in some sense, it's a feature of the calculation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are like imaginary numbers in, uh, in algebra. Uh, I never thought about this analogy, but I think it's a good analogy. You know? Imaginary numbers are numbers bit like real numbers, but the most important imaginary number is called i for imaginary, and i is a number such that its square is minus one. So in some sense, you can say it's not a real number, but now in when you are in high school, you learn about imaginary numbers because you are everywhere when you do calculation in math and in physics. And in fact, imaginary numbers were invented by, uh, I think, Italian mathematician in the 15th century to solve uh, quadratic equations, algebraic equations that uh, mathematicians were studying since the Greek and the Egyptians and maybe the Babylonians. Okay. And in order to find the solution of equations involving real numbers, they discovered that it was not quadratic equation, in fact, but it was a question of degree three. Anyway, some algebraic equation. They discovered that it's, uh, it was very convenient to introduce this number whose square is minus one and consider it as a real number. Just make calculation and consider it at par with the number we were used to at that time. And so now, if you discuss with a mathematician or with a physicist or even with the in engineering, uh, because they are useful when you study electric currents, well, they said, okay, well, I is a number as a one or minus one. They treat it as just an ordinary number. Also, uh, 
if you measure something, if you make a measure a length, you measure an electric current, you, you are never going to find an object whose length is minus i one meter or one mm -hmm. inch. So ghost particles are similar. Particles that you never observe, so in some sense they do not exist, but if you introduce them and treat them in, the, in your calculation, they, they obey the same rule. Substance i is um, maybe considered as a ghostly number, the first ghostly <laughs> number ever to be considered. One shouldn't uh, be too much afraid about ghosts. <laughs> Good. And Francois, you've been teaching here at Perimeter for more than 10 years, teaching yes. students about ghosts and quantum field theory. And actually, I wanted to share that you taught me many years ago when I was a student yes, in this I program. I remember you. <laughs> you remember. Which means that you asked questions. I asked, oh, good. Yes. Well, I'm still asking questions now. <laughs> I wanted to tell you, I still remember there was one day after one of your lectures where a group of my classmates and I were talking and one student came over and he said, that lecture by Francois today was just perfect. He said, there's no way that anyone could have been in the room and not understand everything that ah. he wrote down. And I never heard him say that again about any other lectures. <laughs> so yours was, was okay, definitely well, one you, of the but, best. Uh, and uh, we have one more question about your teaching. Yes. In fact, from another uh, student from a few years ago that you yes. taught. Hey, Francois, this is Fatih from PSR 2019 class. I was wondering, actually, when did you realize that you love teaching? Would you mind telling more about your journey into you know, becoming a teacher? Good question. In fact, I realized I love teaching when I started teaching. I don't know if it's a chance or an unfortunate fact. To get a researcher position in France at CNRS when I was a young scientist. From start, I didn't have any teaching duty. It's good to teach, but I had all my time for doing my research. That I know that for most uh, young scientists nowadays in France and everywhere, they have to teach. So as long as they have to teach uh, a reasonable amount of time, that's okay. But uh, often it's too much. So I had this great chance, and I think this helped me. So I was not especially looking for uh, doing teaching. But I was offered first in, uh, in France, uh, was, uh, I was already uh, older to give some uh, lecture at the level of uh, master or uh, graduate school. I realized that uh, I liked it. So I had the chance, in fact, to teach first in, uh, in France, in École Normale, with a group of, uh, it was for about uh, more than 15 years, some course in application of quantum theory to statistical mechanics. This has been a very good experience because the students were some of the best students in France. Then I was offered this change, one of the greatest experiences, my career to, to teach at, at PSI, which was uh, really great because uh, the students were, well, the, uh, first I discovered uh, this very new uh, research institute, Perimeter Institute, which was still in the phase one building. I discovered entire different worlds of students, uh, you know, coming from uh, many, many different countries with different backgrounds. This was different from teaching in France, where I had uh, very, very good students, but somehow more on the same, from the same mold, very good mold, but the mold of French physics educational system in Paris. So this was uh, complementary. It was an international problem, where at, uh, in France we 
mostly had branch units. Well, now this has changed. The last year, it's more you. It's uh, really European. But here it was the uh, first time I had students from uh, Africa, South Africa, Far East, uh, and this mixture and seeing how. The students were interacting together, how the perimeter was accommodating them, taking care of them. Also having a, a decent proportion of, uh, of women compared to men. Great things about this program. This was a discovery for me. Francois, I'd actually like to read something that you wrote a couple of years ago. It's it's from a book that Perimeter Institute put together to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Perimeter Scholars International Program, the SCI program, which you've been involved with since practically the beginning. You wrote, Every year was memorable, with a special remembrance for the adventures and her heroic first years in the old post office. The old post office, by the way, was Perimeter's first building, just a few blocks from where we are now. You wrote, the old post office building with its sofas and the billiard table and the big coffee machine and evenings spent preparing the next day's tutorials. Long life to the SCI program and to all the students who have benefited from it. Now, I just thought that was a beautiful sentiment in the book. And now there are a lot of students after 10 years who have benefited from that SCI program. What keeps you coming back year after year to teach and what do you get out of it nowadays? Well, uh, I come because I'm uh, very happy to come. I think it's a chance for me. Uh, I hope it's uh, still, uh, the students still enjoy it, but I consider it as a, both a privilege and this brings me happiness. Teaching in front, uh, enjoying these uh, students, uh, very interesting group, all the, you know, interacting with the other lecturer and teacher. Well, last year and this year, it has been much dis disrupted by the pandemics. And also, you know, seeing this very, you know, that's an opportunity for me to visit the perimeter as a scientific uh, you know, research institute, which is a great, new, vibrant place for doing theoretical physics. Great. Well, we're really glad to have you here and part of the teaching here and the research community. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. Perimeter Institute is a not-for-profit charitable organization that shares cutting-edge ideas with the world thanks to the ongoing support of the governments of Ontario and Canada, and thanks to donors like you. Thanks for being part of the equation.